Joel, are we back in? Are we recording? Should we're, we... we're, we're recording. We're Just all keep going. going. Yeah. We're going to edit this yeah. all in. All right. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't envy Priya. That's a, it's going to be a mess for her to edit. But <laughs> sorry, Priya. She'll put something together, right? I mean, she's good at she's good at her job. <laughs> I, I I I'll, I'll talk about. And anyway, I, there's no sponsor. <laughs> Who's going to complain? Yeah, right. <laughs> you all are sitting in the car. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. You're right too. Yeah. Sponsored by Jenny's PNT Committee. Um, <laughs> it finally happened. After five years of recording these podcasts, we had a significant technical screw up which resulted in a loss of audio. And the worst part about it was it was me. I lost the first 20 minutes or so of my recording. Was able to salvage the remainder of the recordings, and I think the podcast still holds up. So here is the salvaged recording. Enjoy. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the regularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't a place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than take the advice from some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman, a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, I tweeted Jay Waits and have no conflicts of interest with the book that we're going to talk about. That's how no COI I am. I went to the public library and took out a copy. Actually, I took it out twice because I didn't finish it the first time. Jenny. Um, I am Jenny Lynn. <laughs> I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University, and I tweet or post at Jenny J. Lynn. And we have two special guests. Making her third appearance on Freely Filtered is Jade Teekle. I'm Jade Teekle. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School in Houston. And I tweet or post at J.M. Teagle. And we also have the author of tonight's manuscript, Perry Wilson. Hey, Perry. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, Perry Wilson. I'm a nephrologist at Yale, uh, where I do clinical research there. I, I think we're saying ZEET. Now is it Zeet <laughs> X E E T at <laughs> F Perry Wilson? <laughs> We're not saying that. All right, sorry Elon. We're not saying that. This is my second uh, freely filtered pod. I was on uh, once before talking about an AI paper. I think so. It's good to be back. I asked Perry. Tell us a story about how you wrote the book. Um. So you know, uh, I've always like you guys have been really interested in the public communication of science as, as someone who really enjoys doing clinical research. I love to teach people about it and think about it and um, talk about cool studies um, uh, that had gone on. And so uh, way back prior to the pandemic, I had pitched to Yale um, an online course uh, on the Coursera platform, which we called um, Understanding Medical Research, Your Facebook Friend is Wrong. 
And the goal of this course, um, Yale has a bunch of free courses online that anyone can take uh, on Coursera, you know, courses on real estate investing to, you know, ancient uh, uh, archaeology stuff. Very cool. Um, and the pitch for this course was lay people should understand how to read a medical paper. Um, I had sort of picked up on the fact that the uh, media environment around medical studies was a lot of hype, was um, a lot of misrepresentation of actual data. And I thought to myself, perhaps somewhat naively in the pre-COVID era, that if people just understood you know, how an abstract worked and what a randomized trial was, that it would empower them to be able to seek out answers for themselves and not be biased by, you know, whatever the last thing they saw on, online was. Um, so we did this course. Uh, it launched about a week into the pandemic, which was just um, serendipity, uh, I, I suppose. Um, became quite popular. It's been taken now by over 85,000 people around the world. Um, uh, nicely uh, uh, reviewed as well, which I'm, I'm really uh, proud of. The idea was I initially thought, okay, this course is great, but some people, you know, why don't we put it into book form? And it was just going to be a book about how to understand medical research, um, really the mechanics of it. But then the goal being to get this to the lay public, um, I met with some literary agents. I eventually found one to work with and we really workshopped it. You know, he was a straight shooter enough to tell me, listen, like, I hate to say this, but no one's going to buy a book that promises to explain how to read an article in the New England Journal. That's not something that people are going to pick up when they're wandering through Barnes & Noble. What's the bigger picture? What are you actually worried about here? Why are you interested in this? And after a lot of discussion, what came out is, you know, I'm worried that people are losing faith in this thing that we do. You know, this, this, this medicine thing that has been the single endeavor that has alleviated more suffering in the history of humankind than any other. And yet, people don't sort of believe in it anymore. And that's the real problem, that loss of trust. And so we sort of reoriented and the book became in part, not just about, you know, how to tell what's a good medical study and what's not, but actually like, why is the public losing faith in physicians? Why are physicians losing faith in the public? The book begins with a woman who's having vague, nonspecific symptoms of fatigue. She's seen a number of doctors. None of them have been able to help her. And Perry attempts, but as soon as he mentions that this may be due to depression, she, he loses the therapeutic relationship. Months later, he sees her in the hospital after she had a grand mal seizure induced by psychogenic polydipsia. The details on this encounter are pretty remarkable and set the tone and the underlying thesis of the entire book. Well, what she had found, and it's interesting, this was a story that came up organically when I was talking to the agent. We were just having, you know, we were discussing like, okay, what's the bigger picture here? And, and the story popped into my head and I'm telling him like, this is the type of person that I think there's something here. Um, so yeah, this was a woman who, you know, had been to doctor after doctor after doctor with these vague symptoms. Um, millions of tests, all negative. Uh, you know, I think you would probably say that she met most criteria for major depressive disorder. Um, I sort of alluded to that as a possibility as gently as I could. And that's definitely when she just was done with me. That was, you know, not, not something she was willing to entertain and, and it, it destroyed any burgeoning bond of trust that we had. You know, what she found was not that you know, hyponatremia is is the cure for for these types of things. Um, 
But what she found was a whole community. You know, when I finally got a chance to talk to her in more depth, she, instead of being kind of an isolated woman, you know, without many close friends, kind of working a job that she wasn't happy with, she had found this community of people, all of whom had thought they had heavy metal poisoning. That was sort of the central theme. You know, she was an office worker, like there were very little chance that she had heavy metal toxicity. In fact, there were even some tests that suggested she didn't have heavy metal toxicity, but that didn't matter. There, There's a whole group of people online that support each other, that talk about their symptoms, that you know share stories, how they got better, how they got worse, what the newest things are. And even though you know from a medical perspective, it's not true, it still works. And we fail to recognize what we are missing um, uh, when we ignore people like that or just say like, oh, they're, you know, ignorant or they're, you know, conspiracy theorists or whatever. And, and Perry, this like mistrust of institutional medicine and also like looking for a clear answer thing that, that we see, we see a lot of. Um, you kind of alluded to this a little bit. Do you feel like that's driven by more folks finding communities on the internet in particular? Is that something that's driven by other forces? It, it, it's certainly been accelerated by COVID stuff, but it seems like internet yeah. community forming is one of those key things that our forebearers just didn't see. Uh, absolutely. We had communities before the internet, and then I think in some ways we lost them to the internet. And in fact, I, I would argue that social isolation is probably the biggest public health threat of our time. Um, you know, you see the the rise of, you know, so-called deaths of despair, right? Overdose, uh, drug overdose, alcoholic liver disease, and suicide um, to levels like, unpre- I, I, I did talk about this in the book um, as I looked up this data, that the suicide rate has never, the last time the suicide rate was this high in this country was at the, in the middle of the Great Depression. That was the last time suicide rates were this high. Drug overdose rates have never been anywhere close to this ever. Um, and neither have deaths due to alcoholic liver disease. You know, th- it's a, it's it's obviously a tremendous problem, particularly for you know these are deaths uh, in you know the so-called prime of life, thirty to thirty to fifty, thirty to sixty. And I think the internet really fractured society in some way. It broke up a lot of social bonds and institutions. Um, I think the sort of end stage of capitalism that we appear to be reaching where you have you know stagnation of wage growth for 90% of people and a lack of a sense of upward mobility has also created this sort of feeling of isolation that like no one is looking out for you there's no sense of progress your kids aren't going to do as well as you did and you aren't doing as well as your parents did and that's a that's a really tough thing and doc like we don't talk to our patients about this as you know no one asks Ask your, you don't ask your patient if they're lonely when they come into your office. Um, I think if you did, you might be surprised what you hear, but you might not have a solution for them. And maybe that's why we don't ask. Oh, I was just going to say, I think there's something to be said about what Josh said, that it's that the internet has broken communities that were probably stronger than the communities that are formed online. So like the title of your course, your Facebook friend is wrong. Before that, it was probably your uncle was wrong or your neighbor was wrong, someone in a closer setting who might be wrong but still cares about you and knows you personally versus these people on the internet, these communities on the internet. You might feel like you're part of a group, but they don't 
they don't know you. They don't have your know your life story, have your best interest in heart. So and people can and there are more of them, right? It gives you that feeling of I'm not alone. There's not just one crazy uncle. I have a whole family behind me. And I, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole there's a thousand crazy uncles on this Discord server. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a that's that's one of the reasons we fall for more ridiculous things um, in the age of the internet. There's a well-described phenomenon called the illusion of truth, where it just is the more you hear a particular fact, the more likely you are to believe it is true. This is kind of extensively studied in psychology and, and actually replicated, which is pretty good for psychology papers. Um, and um, and it's basically, yeah, you know, this is this is you hear you hear you know crooked hillary enough times right like it just starts to seep in that's how humans work and the internet because it feeds you the same thing over and over again particularly if you engage with that content um you get you know drawn deeper and deeper and deeper that's the rabbit hole um so it's 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 really tough you either end up ingesting a lot of water or a lot of sglt2 inhibitors depending on which group you're hanging out with <laughs> it's one or the other Dr. Wilson's book talked about number needed to treat. I didn't love this coverage and wanted to talk about it. It ended up coming up twice in the podcast, once when I was having technical difficulties and another time a little bit later on. Here's the first of the two. He says he wants to talk number needed to treat, which is fine. <laughs> I feel like I didn't encounter number needed to treat as a concept until very late in fellowship time or, you know, is that how did you like first find out about that idea? And like, when did it like enter? How you think about interpreting a trial results yeah. and explaining it to people? I mean, it was probably it was probably in the master's program, Jenny. Before you really like at, at Penn when we, I don't, I maybe I I might have heard it before at some point, you know. But that's that's where you sort of are forced to do the math for the first time. But like, it's not a normal um, med school concept or a internal medicine training concept. Oh, sorry, Jay. Oh, no, I was just going to say, in our medical school, we have a like evidence-based yeah. medicine course. And so those concepts are brought up in medical school. Did I understand it at the time? Absolutely not. That's really fair. But it was yeah. at least that that concept was put into my yeah, brain. Yeah, I had like sensitivity and specificity and like post-test probability stuff. That made sense to me. But the idea that I would treat 80 people with this, you know, with high blood pressure medicines to keep one of them alive, that didn't feel like it was like a, a defining feature of my learning about high blood pressure. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And it's something it's like almost yeah, like what's considered like a really good NNT. You know, <laughs> like you don't yeah, have the yeah. you don't have the well, arbitrary it depends, right? like cut the, off. Um but it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 that it really is interesting to think about because it's a place where our obligation to the public, like our, our obligation to public health, and our obligation to our individual patients, are like not exactly aligned. You know, if I need to treat a hundred people to avoid one heart attack, like clearly as a public health measure, that's you know, assuming the treatment is relatively safe and inexpensive, whatever. But like, fine, good, treat a hundred people to reduce one heart attack, but for that one patient, I'm still saying like, you know, there's, there's a 99% chance this doesn't help you. Sorry, Joel, we talked about never needed to treat it. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this section, this section you're talking about, Mary, the absolute yeah. risk is for individuals, relative risk is for populations. That just felt like it yeah. totally crystallized this idea for me in a way I hadn't seen it. 
was really oh good because <laughs> i remember in residency Thanks. being taught absolute risk reduction is what matters relative risk reduction doesn't matter seems like it's a little bit more gray but then re rereading that in your chapter i was like oh yes now it's all coming back to me yeah, <laughs> but yeah I mean, it's something that we don't we don't discuss much at least not in our nef jc discussions <laughs> i don't think yeah you know, I think when it comes to absolute risk versus relative risk, right, th there is this sort of pat thing that um, evidence-based medicine people like to talk about there, which is, you know, a relative risk is around to make effect sizes look better, right? You know, you, so you've got a absolute risk of death of 2% in the control group and 1% in the intervention group. You know, that's a relative risk of 50%. You know, you cut that, that, sounds so great, but it's an absolute risk of 1% difference. It's the number needed to treat of 100 to save one life. That's And it's sort of like, oh, if, if pharmaceutical companies and whatnot were honest, that they would they, you know, they would just report the absolute risk. But there is a role for relative risk, Jenny, as you were pointing out, and, and, and Josh. And, and relative risk is for public health. You know, if there's 100,000 deaths due to disease X, and the relative risk of, uh, you know, for this new drug is cuts the death rate in half by 50%. Well, if I treat everyone, then that 100,000 goes down to 50,000. That's true. You know, you just save 50,000 yeah. lives. And so um, both are important. It just depends. You know, the question is, what is the question? Are we worried about public health? Or are we worried about the individual patient? Well, and I thought your example of you get one pull in the slot machine was really helpful because that's and that's what we as doctors we get lots of pulls yeah we get lots of opportunities you know and the one that that, that i always come back to is the um is the uh vanderbilt study um uh smartly on choosing normal saline or uh balanced solutions lactate ringers in that case mm -hmm. and that there was a one percent difference that was a one percent difference it was a number needed treated of 100 but like who cares which maintenance fluids you choose mm -hmm. right why would you not choose the one you know, because you're ordering it on everybody. Yeah. Like it, it you're going to see that hundred patients and it's not going to take you that long for you to have a right. to avoid a major adverse kidney event, no matter what, even if I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, ex exactly. But, you know, from a perspective, obviously of, of the particular patient, it's a different, you know, for the health system. Oh, sure. We, we, we switch entirely over to LR and we'll have less kidney injury. And that's true. To the individual patient, if they said, "Hey, doc, I see you're giving me LR. Do you do you think this is going to help my kidneys?" You know, you your honest answer would be like, "Oh, almost certainly not." Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, there, <laughs> right, right, right. There's a 99% chance it's going to make absolutely no difference. But who knows? Maybe you're the one that gets lucky this time with this stuff, right? And like, let's give it a shot because you know it's not risky and whatever. Um, but that's something where doctors are way off. So, so the studies. It, the, the study I cite in the book, but um, pretty interesting to me, was on doctors' ability to prognosticate outcomes versus to predict benefit of therapy. And we're very good at prognosticating outcomes. If I if I give you a patient, I say, okay, this is a seventy year old guy. He's got diabetes, hypertension. He's got an LDL of one hundred and sixty. He had an NSTEMI a year ago. And you know, what do you think his percentage chance of having a heart attack or stroke within the next ten years is? You'll give me a number. It'll be something like 30%. I don't know. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. And you'll probably be pretty darn close to right. Um, that's we're, we're decent at that. If you then, if I then ask you, okay, um, 
assuming he's not in a stat and how, how, uh, how likely is he to derive benefit from starting a stat? And most docs, you know, most docs will be like, like at higher than 50%, right? I mean, this guy like is begging for a stat, right? He's, this guy, he's got 80% chance he'll benefit from a stat. But of course, when you kind of look back at the studies and stuff like that, like the, the, number needed to treat even in a population like at this and even over 10 years is still you're talking about 10 20 30 people so actually for that one guy the chance that he'll benefit is low now of course it's worth it right because statins are cheap and relatively uh you know uh, side effect free with some notable exceptions and a 10% chance to save someone's life is something we would all take absolutely but we definitely overestimate that. I know I do. I think we all do. I think maybe we have to because otherwise we would just fall into like nihilism, right? And 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 we want to think we're helping each of our patients, but really we're just helping our patients, our patient population on average. And that is not nearly as satisfying. I mean, unless you're a surgeon, like, you know, like a, a trauma surgeon or something, they, they have numbers needed to treat of one so they can they can feel pretty good about themselves when they go to bed at night. I guess it's sort of changing your perspective instead of like, I'm helping all these people a little bit. I'm helping one of these people an awful lot. I just don't know which one it is. <laughs> right. I don't know which one it is. That's right. Yeah. But it, but it also like... But you have these patients that are like, I refuse to take a statin. And like, once I started looking into number, number needed to treat, I didn't care anymore. I was like, <laughs> like fine, okay. let's move on. Let's talk about something. If you want to wear a seatbelt, let's work on that. You want to get your blood pressure. Let, you know, let's talk about the things that you do want to work on. Right. The, not- the, the, this is like this idea of um, a health portfolio, like doctor as um, a stockbroker, right? Like, you know your stockbroker calls you and says, listen, you got to invest in whatever in Microsoft, right? You know, they look great right now. And you say, eh, you know, I don't know, you know, they're giving you their best advice. They think it's probably going to go up. They're not a hundred percent sure. You say, nah, I don't like that kind of stock. And they say, okay, I got something else for you. I mean, that, that is exactly how this is. And the goal is not, there's no one simple thing. You know, the, the goal is to increase your sort of health dividend by doing as many healthful things as possible. Now that may be taking a statin, it may be exercising more, it may be switching to veganism, whatever. Like you can invest in your health that way. And doctors need to be willing to say, like, here are the investments that like I suggest you make. And you know, there are plenty. I think there's a section, I forget where it is, that you So you guys didn't really talk about NNT, did you? A little bit. We we kind of we brushed up against NNT a little bit. Okay. So I, but I do want to, you get, can ask your question. I want to, I want to get my, so, cause, because, and yeah. honestly, this was the, this was the, this was the only part of the book where I was screaming at the car radio as I was driving, <laughs> listening to this book was that w- one of the things about the NNT, when we do this calculation, so, uh, you know, for the sprint trial, for example, I think the NNT was 88, something like that. You needed to treat yeah. 80 some odd patients yeah, over three years or something. Yeah. But that's the thing is that it's over three years. Mm-hmm. And if you assume that the relative risk, uh, the relative, the hazard ratio remains the same if at six years and nine yep. years and 12 years, the number of events accumulates. And as the number of events accumulates with the same hazard ratio, that number needed to treat falls over time. 
That is that, not, that is correct. Yeah, and we're not going to just treat people's hypertension for three years. Like Thomas, <laughs> we're getting on this road. This road, we're going to be right. treating them to the, for the rest of their lives. And so this this it just it undersells chronic therapy. And the, the other entity you gave was uh, was a remarkably good one was the steroids in COVID, mm-hmm. and that that one the entity is perfect because it's a short term event. You're not going to be on yeah. steroids for a long time. That seems to encapsulate the story. But right. Just it. That you're right. The chronic statistics therapy works less well for chronic. Therapy. It absolutely does. It, it, you're absolutely right. For chronic therapy, um, yeah, the longer you, the longer you go on, presumably, the and assuming the therapy continues to work, which there's no reason to think it wouldn't over time. That that number does go down. Um, I don't think even in sprint, you know, getting people below uh, 130 versus below 140. I don't think you're ever getting to like below 10, <laughs> even if you watch um, for, for, for a few decades, but maybe, I don't know. Um, but you're right. It, it, it does undersell. And I wanted to be really careful for patients who are reading this book, not to think that I'm like sitting here telling them like, by the way, nothing works. Like don't bother taking your medications. Right. Um, one of the numbers needed to treat that I like is the seatbelt. Uh, which is twenty five thousand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah a crazy number, and yet we all wear our seatbelts because, you know, it's it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> like, why not? Why not do it? Right. So the number needed to treat needs to be interpreted in the context of what kind of the side effects are. What you know, and whether that side effect is is a physical thing or cost or whatever it is. But the truth about seatbelts is, you know what? Like most of us are not going to be in a near fatal accident, right? Uh, the type of car accident where if you have your seatbelt on, you survive and you don't have your seatbelt on, you die. Most of us fortunately are never going to be in a car accident that comes remotely close to that. Some of us will be in car accidents that it don't matter if you're wearing the seatbelt or not, of course. Yep. And then either, either way, either way. And, um, and then there's the, who it benefits is those, you know, people in the middle who, just would have been saved by that one thing. And that's why the number needed to treat is so high. And yet, um, you don't know if it's going to be you or not. And so it's certainly worth it to keep wearing your seatbelt. It's part of how you invest in your health. It's a very unlikely thing that you'll get in that type of accident, but you'll be happy you're wearing your seatbelt when you did. And it's the same with medications and um, and NNT. Thinking about, yeah, thinking about mortality, though, as the endpoint that we're talking about with NNTs may seem a little bit too abstract if not, mm. or seem too far off uh, for um, a patient or someone reading the book, especially with the car accident scenario, right? A seatbelt can at least prevent you from more serious harm, or it could That's great keep point. you out of the hospital. There's other endpoints. it could just make you... Yes. Yeah. Having a blood pressure of 125 systolic you might feel better than if it were 175 walking around. Totally. And that that's still a, has that's another great benefit. Point. So these are things that I think unless the reader or patient can really feel like there's a payoff in the near future, that's not just mortality. And I think you've re- alluded to it in the book, like when you're thinking off into, okay, well, am I really going to be, you know, why not have this cheeseburger or some other vice, right? <laughs> Is like, yeah. you know, yeah. not engaging that is harder when the concept of mortality is actually far away. And I don't remember reading this, but is there literature supporting the use of NNT for educating people? 
Does it work? Patience? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I, yeah, I have seen some, I don't know. I haven't, I, I can't recall offhand, like if they were looking at kind of understanding, but there's been some good implementation science about, I, I've seen some papers that show like graphical representations of risks and benefits that they, they sort of like. So they'll show, you know, 50 little icons of people and they'll say, this has been used for, I think like screening tests, I think like mammograms mm-hmm. and things. And I'll have, okay, if, you know, here's a hundred people who getting mammograms and here are the three people who you know, we'll have a breast cancer detected and here are the five people that have some, have something found that requires further workup. And, and, and that is a form of number needed to treat essentially. I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do that we should sit down with our patients and say, you know, okay, and I'm about to prescribe you some lisinopril to get your blood pressure under control, which has a number needed to treat of 50. And and now I'm going to prescribe you some, you know, uh, Coreg. Um, I, it, but I think it's it's important, you know, to recognize that for us doctors to recognize that patients are not necessarily being irrational when they don't want to take a medication that we prescribe. And it's important for patients to understand where our data comes from. You know, medicine is a science of percentages. That that that's why I kind of come back to this picking stocks type of analogy. It's not certain. We're never exactly sure if the the thing we're doing is going to make them work. We're just hedging our bets. We're saying it's more likely that taking the statin is going to be good for you than it's going to do something bad for you. I don't know. Maybe if we're kind of more transparent about that, people will be, you know, more tolerant of the times that we change our minds or turn out to be wrong about things or all that other stuff. Of course, we're competing in some sense with the people the non-practice non-medical providers on the internet who are selling absolute certainty right they're selling like guaranteed cures for cancer that you know come shipped uh, shipped in a pill to your home um and part of the narrative of this book is teaching people like not to trust the sure things and to not only tolerate but embrace a bit of ambiguity yeah it hurts their brains less though to embrace the hope in a magic bullet <laughs> or it makes our head head hurt less. It's great. It just, but uh, yeah, but it hurts people's, you got, and this isn't a question of intelligence or anything, right? You have Steve Jobs, the one time, the richest man in the world, you know, certainly one of the most powerful people in the world with a fully treatable, you know, pancreatic cancer, not adenocarcinoma, you know, a a, a treatable form of- Neuroetican, a neuroetican. Yeah, um, which he- you know, refused to undergo standard therapy for and and pursued alternative therapies because of that sort of distrust of the system, the belief that um, there were easy solutions out there. You know, this is a guy who thought, you know, very brilliantly that like you could you could find the key if you thought hard enough, you could do something simple and it would make everything better. And he, you know, he paid with his life. And that was, that's someone who had a lot more resources at his disposal and could have spoken to the Surgeon General at a moment's notice, we need to start understanding this these cognitive biases that our patients are dealing with. One of the things that I'd wanted to talk about before we got interrupted was uh, it's not just patients that it's 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 healthcare itself has failed patients and what and there were not many ideas that you circled back very specifically twice, but one of them was that we are, medicine has become labor. We are no longer management. You did this in the introduction and then you do that later in the book also. Was that 
when you when that crystallized in your mind, was that kind <laughs> it, of a mind blowing moment for you? Because it because you're pretty green yeah. in the beginning of the book. You talk about some episodes when you're early in your career, and it's clear that you led a pretty, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to cast stones. I I led a very so, sheltered I, life. I didn't walk patients off the street into neurology clinics hoping playing a movie scene that day. It was a great story. It was a great story. But I, I, I love know, that it's, story. It's, it's like super embarrassing in retrospect, but obviously like I just didn't know. We all have those stories. You just put them alive. <laughs> so we appreciate it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is something that has, you know, through, through uh, my wife that many of you know is also a physician. And so this is often a, a topic of conversation. So the statistic is that currently in the United States, 70% of physicians are employed by corporations. So the majority are not private practice. They don't, they're not management. They're not running their own business. Um, they are employed by something, a healthcare system, some other large practice, et cetera. And that does make us labor. That is why we have administrators breathing down our throats to, you know, expand our clinic times and see more patients and tracking our RVUs and increasing our RVU targets from year after year. If we really want to change things, part of what we need to realize is that we, you know, have more in common with the auto worker in our uh, in our office that we're seeing for a checkup than we do with the C-suite executive whose name is on our checks. <laughs> um, and I don't think doctors have fully processed that yet, but the, the younger generation is starting to. D uh, Josh, you're, you're at uh, the residence at Beth Israel. They're unionized right now. So no, so that was Brigham MGB, uh, sorry, Brigham MGH that just had the union vote and decided and to get unionized. Uh, I'm, going to stop talking there about my employee. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I don't know. Oh, anything, fair enough. Fair I enough. I don't want to okay. get myself in any more trouble than I, than I could possibly get into. That's an excellent example of exactly what I'm talking about, Josh. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So I'm someone who, uh, I'll say like, I think unionizing for residents and fellows, and I think unionizing for faculty makes a lot of sense. At the same time, I'm a person yeah. who really likes doing medicine and does not like running a business. That's why I do medicine. And so like, I can see the argument to have doctors in charge because the way these businesses are being run gets in the way of doing really good medicine. But I also don't want that to be my job. <laughs> and so I, I don't know how to like split that line of like, I support this as an idea, but oh, there are a million doctors <laughs> who want to be in charge. Have, have, have you no, met any doctors? Doctor is power or what? Right. Yeah. Unionizing is a really interesting concept for doctors. It obviously presents some additional challenges beyond what, like, the auto workers may have faced in the twenties. Um, you know, we kind of have to keep going to work, right? Like, I think most of us <laughs> would feel that it's unethical for us to just stop treating people who are sick um, because of that, but. We can do some interesting things. We can see people and not code um, for the visit. Not build. And, <laughs> you know, they will get the care. They will get the care that they need. And the people that, you know, are collecting the billing that we do uh, will get the message, I imagine, quite quickly if you had a few days of all the doctors within a health system um, refusing to, to code the visits that they do. Um, and, of course, the, the thing that doctors need to fight for though is not necessarily better wages and benefits i mean in terms of residents by all means but you know for for attendings and 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 faculty i don't think that's the the major issue the what we need to fight for is the 
time to take care of the patients the way we want to take care of them and the way they deserve to be taken care of. Um, that's the thing that's mainly been taken away from us is our ability to spend an adequate amount of time with the patients. And there's lots of reasons for that. But but part of it is because there's so much administrative overhead that you have to generate so much revenue to pay the 10 administrators per physician in a healthcare system, which is another insane statistic that I you know uh, researched here. Um, to pay those 10 administrators per physician, you have to have a physician who's you know, working like on a hamster wheel and patients just aren't getting the quality of care they need. I mean, we're not, I, I, I'm not getting the quality of care from my doctor. You know, I'm a doctor and I, I called and <laughs> left a message, uh, you know, for my physician and got a call back like 10 days later, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it, it's like, I, I imagine that that's probably, I've got to be at the top of the list, you know? <laughs> I, don't know. I think one thing I like about the way you frame these discussions and, and you do this in the book too, is that it's really not, it's putting doctors and patients right. on the same side that we both have a vision of like the, the doctor vision right. of how we would do this. Right. Is a vision. I think totally can really buy into um, and it's not a vision of me quitting work at noon and going play right. golf every day, which I don't like anyway. It's a vision of like how I get to do this job in a soul fulfilling way that yeah. does right by the people who trust me. Yeah. Their kid. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really easy in these like fights about, you know, what medicine is good medicine and these internet shysters are bad and these people are good and these are telling me the truth of the lies like to lose the fact that um that it's really like that's the vision of medicine we're fighting for we're not fighting against all these other people oh absolutely yeah yeah um and it's a great point that i think your vision in your head of like the perf perfect medicine and your patients is very much the same the the only people that kind of don't share that vision are the people trying to profit off the relationship. Let's, uh, I want to go round Robin to talk about everybody's kind of favorite part of the book. Uh, Jay, do you want to start? Um, I had probably two parts, maybe um, one, which I think is a very big discussion, but one was the discussion of the early goal directed therapy for sepsis. That was gospel. When I was Love in that section. school in residency and seeing yeah. that evolve over time and seeing, you know, and I think you mentioned this in the book, some people have moved on and updated and some people haven't. And we've kind of gotten in these camps, so to speak. So just, you know, reading through that and kind of remembering all of that, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, but then I also really liked the section that was talking about hope and you know, I think that's something that some of these one things that people get taken in by have that component of hope of, you know, this is something that will work or this is something that might work. That I think as doctors, we sometimes have a hard time of giving hope if we know the outcome. And I think it's still really very important. And again, it goes back to having the time, like you said, to have those conversations yeah. with patients and um, you know, I think the story was about the patient who needed the heart transplant and I really, I really like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, thank you. That, that 
is one that still um still 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 haunts me to this day as i as i write about in this book this poor kid um but yeah i mean you know hope is is a way that we build trust um and of course false hope is something that is also commoditized and sold and so you know how do you be an honest doctor when someone has a terminal condition and things like that um and it's really hard and it requires you know there's a there's 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 hope that says, oh, you know, for a miracle, right? Everything's going to, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you'll be all better. And then there's different kinds of hope that, you know, hope for, um, hope for being fulfilled in the time that you have um, and for finding meaning. You know, I, I came back to that quote, which does happen to be by a man, Victor Frankel, who said, um, you know, that despair is suffering without meaning. And, you know, our patients are suffering. That's why they're seeing us um, in one way or another. Um, and we'll never alleviate all suffering. And I'm sure we all have patients that, you know, we we wish we could and we can't and we fail. Um, but finding meaning is something that we can help guide people to, even, in, uh, even when hope is harder to find. And if we can avoid despair, um, maybe that's good enough. Excellent. Jenny, what do you got? Well, I really like um, that this book brings out and paints both the patient side as very human. Patients are humans, obviously, but the physician side being also very humans. And we are not perfect. Those of us who are um, really want to do right by the patients, Some, a lot of us are not af- afraid to admit when we're wrong and to apologize. And I thought that was a very powerful statement that you made. And I, I liked the, just to, 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 to just leverage off that the, the idea that saying that you made a mistake as a way of building trust mm. was, I thought really true is that it does show that you are trusting the patient with your honesty, that you don't need to have this, uh, veil of perfection when you talk to them is comes to them as hey I'm human too and I'm honestly going to tell you hey we were I was wrong on this one yeah um, it's really hard uh, and it, it it if you ha- if you don't have a solid base with that patient at all it can certainly backfire you know you need you need to have something there before you can say, and I was also wrong about this, which is why those, those first few visits are so important. And, and when I'm talking to the fellows and residents and stuff about seeing patients, um, you know, particularly on the outpatient side, I'll say like, listen, you don't have to fix everything on that first visit. Like listen to them, see what the issues are. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You, by no means can prescribe four new medications during this first visit. I don't care if they need to be on them. You know, you've got to, this is, this is, you're, you're investing in this relationship for the future. Um, of course, that also takes time. Yeah. Just to lighten the mood just a little bit, a couple other favorite parts that I had was one, when you took your kids to deliver hot dogs to Miss Ambrose. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was really awesome. Uh, did you all do an additional trip, or did you ever uh, meet up with her we, again? In the we did, we visited her. We visited her a few times. She actually, I, I just uh, uh, this happened recently. She just passed away in January, actually. Um, so uh, 
Um, but yeah, she was a, a, a saucy old lady <laughs> um, with, you know, a, a, a ton of spunk and a really interesting sort of life story. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it was good for the kids yeah, too. Yeah, to, for sure. Have an experience <laughs> like that. And then another part that I really liked, um, and you were talking about how you lost a patient, you know, in that exam room, uh, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. about the depression, everything. And I was chuckling to myself as I was reading. And I was like, okay, this is probably where Perry loses me was the section when <laughs> you talked about your lunch breaks, going into your office, closing the door and watching YouTube videos about math. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, Okay, Perry and I are not on the, living on the same planet. Right it's what a what a dork is what it says. <laughs> what a dork! I, it, it's so funny. I have it screenshot. I have it screenshotted also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was so Perry. Good YouTubers. The but, but like we can learn. We can learn so much about science communication from. There's some guys talking about you know physics and math on YouTube that are so compelling. Um, and some of the production values are like really good. I feel like medicine is behind. Um, there's a lot of great science communicators on the the hard science side. Okay, well, maybe the next time I'm on a freely filtered episode, my tubular secretion will be about a math video that very convinces. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. We're looking do you know what I watched today? My 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 son actually proposed this, the eleven year old. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He he told me in the car. He's like, "Did you know, Dad, that if you had a block on a frictionless surface and it weighs a kilogram, and another block bumps into it and it bumps into a wall and then it bumps back into the original block, it'll bounce three times if they're both one kilogram." And I say, "Okay." And he says, "And if one is ten kilograms and one is one kilogram, it'll bounce thirty one times." And if one is 100, it'll bounce 314 times. And it's the digits of pi. Every time you go up by a factor of 10, it's an additional digit of pi. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it's not. You know? <laughs> and, and he was like, it is. I saw it on YouTube. And I was like, no, that okay. But I, of course, I was on my lunch break and I looked. And you can look, <laughs> if you go digits of pi bouncing blocks on YouTube, you'll find a mathematician who goes through this, you know, the most bizarre way you've ever seen to calculate the digits of pi and why it actually works that these sliding blocks bumping into walls bounce into each other, the pi number of digits of time. Anyway, a little bit of an aside, but worth worth a view during your next okay. lunch break. Did you find it, Joel? You're I, did, I, found, I, I did find it. I did yeah. find it. I'm, I'm putting it in. Because <laughs> that's one, that one's bizarre. I know we're going around for a favorite chapter. Can I actually ask a question about a chapter that I felt like left something on the table and wanted to see if there was more of a story there? Um, so I am sure. probably the worst person to yeah. talk about the pharma chapter. Um, but I think that's probably a chapter because mm-hmm. kind of venture statement. My wife has worked for a pharma company for a long time and it's her salary that pays our mortgage. Sure. Mine. Um, but that said, <laughs> I've seen his house. It's pretty nice. <laughs> I, to to I'll say that. Um, so I, I think you raise a couple of big issues along the way in in that chapter, kind of identifying um, the profit motive being a real stumbling block in getting everyone to the right care. Um, about how sometimes hiding data can still make a super profitable drug 
very worth doing. And even if you get penalized for it, never penalized quite enough. And the patent work mm-hmm. and um, those kind of being the, the big things that, that stuck out in that chapter. I feel like the the fixes section, though, yeah. is a lot shorter than the section about identifying problems. And I know that's probably its own whole section of the mm-hmm. book. But I think if patients come yeah. to us, yeah. pharma is an industry they really don't trust and see us in the pocket of. Um, I wonder if there are other things we should be talking about when we talk with patients um, about how to be more transparent about conflict of interest in Sunshine Act payments, about how to advocate more clearly for some of these patent changes, like those kind of changes that get at more of the, the underlying issues. Um, as I think mm-hmm. allying with patients and getting them to vote because the votes are more important than money makes sense. But I just don't know how to how to move beyond that yeah. one step. And I don't need to have more thoughts there. It's really hard. I mean, I, w- I don't have a simple solution either. I, I, I think that transparency is kind of ethically important, but actually doesn't do very much. Like the truth is most patients don't really care that you, I mean, e- even if they look at it, first of all, the vast majority are going to find that their doctors have received either nothing or have like $20 on that database for, you know, being at a pharma lunch once. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean much to them. And so I'm glad that it's there. Like it's probably a good thing. Um, and it's fun to look up like some famous doctors and see how much they're getting from pharma. Like it's voyeuristically interesting, but, um, but I don't think that's the, I don't think just transparency is the solution. Um, I think real reform, um, you know, uh, of patent reform for one, you know, um, investment in generic technologies, um, you know, we make it lowering the bar for generic competition. These are all things that can be done on a governmental level. The fact that the United States and what's the one other country? Australia I keep forgetting. Only two countries in the world. Oh, no. No, no, it's definitely not about definitely not Australia. They're no, very, I, what I'm about to say is 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 allow direct consumer, direct direct consumer marketing. Consumer. No, it's like yeah. it's like Burkina Faso. It's like in the United States and like a random. Um, uh, in any case, that's a that, the marketing budgets are huge. You said um, for pharma. You said U.S. and New Zealand. Is it all? Is it, you see, it's okay. I'm sorry. That's sorry. I apologize to all your news. <laughs> New, Z- New Zealand listeners, um, I, that I thought that was an obscure country, but no. Um, so I, 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 I think, you know, I, I think there's some substantial reform, um, that can happen, but I do think it's going to require government intervention. And the fact that far, far, I think pharma knows this because pharma spends as an industry spends more money lobbying the government by about a factor of three than the number two industry, which is oil and gas. So, which is like, like the, you'd think the energy, right? This America, they need their like drilling licenses. You know, they want to drill in the Arctic, whatever, like you put your lobbying bucks in, right? Buy yourself some congressmen. No, pharma is way more because I think they know what the, what's at risk because they're in the, if you look at you know um, uh, public polling for uh, reform of pharmaceutical industry, even things like patent extensions and stuff, it's like wildly popular to do these kind of things, um, right? Letting Medicare negotiate with pharmaceutical companies for drug prices, wildly popular on both sides of the aisle. So of course you have to spend a lot of lobbying money if you if you want to keep that from happening and maintain you know profit margins that are. Um, are pretty incredible uh, as an industry, right? 15, 
I do want to point out that Food Factor is the number 71 most popular medicine podcast in New Zealand. <laughs> so, just looked it up. All so right. We do have listeners in New Zealand. Okay? So, so. Yes, thank and, thank and you, are, Jerry. They're our favorite <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I do appreciate you talking about that component of patent extensions and how much the pharmaceutical company you know, really needs that and tries to keep that. My husband is actually a patent attorney, so I'm very aware of kind of, he's not in pharma, but still that that need for corporations to keep their proprietary stuff proprietary. And there, there seems to be that conflict of interest because they'll say, oh, we need that money to put it back into research and development. And you went kind of through that in the book, how that's really not the case. That's not where the well, they spend more on marketing than they do on research and development. So it, right there, it's, you know, if you just want to break it down by percentages, then they might as well be saying, oh, well, we need that money so that we can, you know, increase our marketing budget or make our marketing budget. So let's just say like, listen, we'll take, we'll take it off your table for you don't have to make those fancy commercials anymore that cost all that money. You're not allowed to, and you can take all that money and put it towards research and development. But, but my patient SGLT2 inhibitors won't learn to tap dance then. Like how, how are they going to move forward? That's the... The SGLT2 numbers, they're not the problem. I mean, it's the loop kindness. It's the, it's, you know, this drug that costs $100,000 a year to reduce proteinuria and lupus. Uh, you know, it's like I, I see the, pa- the lupus patient for an hour. I spend that time with them. I get $400, right? And I'm going to prescribe a drug that's going to cost them $14,000 a month. Or not them. I, I know that none of my patients pay it. Right, they're they're just you know they talk about a slot machine. They're just looking for the one insurance company that's going to cover it. And how many do they actually need to get for that drug to become a blockbuster at 100k a year? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's not nothing that they're doing is is sort of unpredictable in the in a in a for profit driven world. You would do the same thing. You know, they they have obligations to their shareholders after all, right? Like they they could. You could argue they have to do all this. They have to lobby the government. They have to do marketing. They have to keep prices as high as the market is willing to bear because that's their fiduciary duty. You know, these are publicly traded companies. Um, but if we're going to change it, then we got to we got to have some big structural changes, and that requires probably electing some people that really care about this. Excellent. So um, I'm going to go next. I'm going to leave Perry. He's going to have to pick his favorite uh, chapter oh. last. So I've got, I got a couple things. So one, I loved uh, you laying out comparing what a p-value 0.05 is comparing to flipping coins. Because mm-hmm. doing research myself, it sounded like if you had asked me how many coins I'd have to flip in a row, I would have said 10 or 12. Right, right. Yeah. Because it's so hard to get a p-value 0.05, right? It's <laughs> so like... It's hard, right? So many things that look like, oh, it looks like it's good. It looks like it's good. No, no, no. It doesn't hit it. It doesn't hit it, right? Yeah. And to find that it's only four or somewhere between four and five heads in a row, my brain exploded. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't believe that, you know, and and I loved your line. He's like, yeah, data that weird is enough for the FDA to say, we're going to approve the drug. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, wow. Um, Right. Yeah, you know, FDA requires two clinical trials, which you know it makes, makes it a little much bit harder. harder. Unless you are an orphan drug delegation or you know breakthrough designation, in which case you only need one. And so it is. It's it's a it's a somewhat low bar. 
but uh, but but yeah, I actually do that demonstration with my class. I flip a quarter and I ask them to tell me if they think it's a real quarter or not. You know, I keep getting heads and ask them to raise their hands when they say when they sort of start to suspect that something is up. <laughs> um, so we kind of crowdsource the p value that way. Yeah. So and that, but the other one that I thought was it was really me- meaningful to me is you talked about what patients want and what they want from their doctors this is late in the book. And I, I just read that chapter and a patient came in for the dreaded fourth opinion, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yep. And, and you had an approach to this. You said, find out what the patients want. What are they, what are they looking for? And I, I just laid it out. It's like, what is it about, what is it about your disease that is causing you the problems? What do you, what do you want me to work on? Yeah. And we had a really productive visit, right? It was great. Right. You know, she told me, you know, this is what they've been doing. This is what they've tried. And this is what, but this is what I need. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, we can, I, I can help you with that. Yeah. And I was, you know, before I went in, I was just kind of dreading the visit. I was like, yeah, she's had, she, it's her fourth opinion. And she's had really good opinions beforehand. It's not yeah, like they, yeah. 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 Not You've like she that. ran into four idiots. Like they're good people. Yeah. She got good advice. Right. But they, they weren't giving her the answers that she was looking for. So um, I'm so glad I thought to that was that. really useful. Good. Yeah, it was really useful. No, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. And where, and where, can you talk a little bit more about that? Kind of the, where did that come from? And uh, th- th- mostly that came from my sort of days doing more primary care um, than nephrology, honestly. And, and as primary care, you always have your list of things that you need the patient to do, right? The like, oh, it's do, you're due for your colonoscopy, you're due for your mammogram, right? All that no one wants to do their colonoscopy. That's like the last thing, you know? <laughs> um, and what I, what I found is that you know, this tit for tat works fairly well, which is like, let's talk about your thing. You know, what's, 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 what is, why are you suffering? What is your problem? And if it's your back pain, then we're going to talk about your back pain. And I tell you what, like, I'm going to deal with your back pain and you're going to get a colonoscopy for me. <laughs> this is how this is going to work. And that, that also builds that sort of trust bond. You know, it's like, it's, we're working on this thing together and I've got what's important to me and you've got what's important to you. And we're both going to respect each other. And I think it does kind of work. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, Perry, what's your favorite part of the book? I think the part that I sort of enjoyed writing the most or, or, or felt most strongly about was um, was the story of uh, when I was in the uh, Calvary Hospital, which is a hospice hospital outside of New York City, as a med student um, at Columbia. And, you know, they have you kind of show up and you you talk to these people who are in on inpatient hospice, you know, and they're just kind of waiting to die. And it was just a gorgeous hospital. Uh, everyone was so wonderful. It was completely different. I mean, it's such a good experience for people who are in a, a, a regular, you know, tertiary care center where everything is beeping and screaming and hustling. And this was just, you know, there's no blood draws. There's no, there's no vital signs. It's all about, you know, checking in, making sure people are comfortable. They have what they want to eat. They have what they want to drink. It was, it was a really beautiful experience. And it was also a place where I kind of, as a medical student felt just sort of wholly inadequate and had to face my own, uh, you know, existential sense of the frailty of, of, of life in general. And as I s- described in the book, you know, I wouldn't say exactly have a breakdown, but spent a fair amount of time sitting in a, a stairwell silently um, while I was there. So it's not exactly like a, a set of behaviors that I'm proud of in my past, but in terms of when I go back to the book, reading that section sort of makes me think like, okay, like I did a good job on this. This is a 
this is a, I'm, I can be proud of what I put on the paper here. One other anecdote. Back in 2001, uh, my wife and I started going through in vitro fertilization and happy ending. We got twins. They're great. <laughs> 20, they're 20 years old now. Wow. And, uh, but when we started the journey, we came across this article about prayer and in vitro oh, fertilization. Oh, my God. Swear to God. In the New York Times. In the New York Times. Yeah. That's right. And, yeah. we sent, and we sent an email to all of our friends, and we are not religious people. But we're like, hey. <laughs> asking them to pray for us. Yeah. And we're like, we would not normally do this, but look at this article. Right? I know. I and know. I had not thought of it. Right since that moment, and I, I couldn't believe what I'm. I'm reading this book, like, oh my god! And, I, and and it was so unbelievable, right? It was of so course. crazy that right people in America praying for women in Korea were having this huge improvement in pregnancy rates. It was right. It, it it certainly didn't pass the smell test. And I think even for you know the the theologically minded people, sort of <laughs> suggested that you know. God is probably not amenable to testing in a randomized controlled trial either. Um, <laughs> um, so, like, it was, yeah, I mean, this is a great story for for people who haven't read it. Uh, this was- See, a, I, I remember reading yeah. that article and thinking, what we should do now is empirically prove which religion is right by yeah. having different religious backgrounds pray for people. We could take it, move we, the needle. We could do everything, right? right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Um, Sorry, Buddhists, it didn't work for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, depend, you know, certain gods might like babies more than others, which you have to account for. But, um, but this was—I mean, th this this is a, a, a fraudulent article. I mean, completely made up, whole cloth, basically. But, but by this amazing character, you could probably write a book about this guy, um, or do at least a cool Netflix documentary. Uh, Daniel Worth, who's like a parapsychologist and has all these weird publications and therapeutic touch and stuff. But went to jail because he was, you know, engaged in check fraud and like was cashing his dead father's social security checks. And he went by the alias John Wayne True Love, which is like the best alias I've ever heard in my life. Like, don't you want to have, you know, eight episode miniseries on like John Wayne True Love and his his scam uh, scientific I papers? I I want to <laughs> see the scene. I want to see is how he convinces this what chief of obstetrics at Columbia yeah at Columbia. Yeah, how did he get that guy to be the lead author on this thing? Senior author, That's yeah, senior I know. author. I know uh, it's it's problematic. Um, you know, academic yeah. authorship is uh, is is a fraught system at times. Well, and there was the um, the 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 COVID scam. What was that company called? The was the vascular surgeon oh, doing right. the yeah? What was the, that called? The like database, uh, large the database. scale database it, that it, it, churned and, and it again, out. It was data made up whole cloth. Yeah, it was this early publications in uh, on COVID, and they did a publication. They did one of the early ivermectin studies that was all fraud, and then but their big one was the hydroxychloroquine, and they were not positive hydroxychloroquine. They showed that it did not work and was highly toxic, and it and, but it was all fraudulent. <laughs> yeah, I mean. There's a whole chapter on fraud in the book, and I don't want to give the impression that you know fraud is ran at least outright fraud of the sort of like making up a paper from start to finish is 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 rampant in medicine. I don't think it is. Um, but you know, massaging data, I think happens quite a bit, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, if you want to take anything about understanding medical research from my course or the book, it's um, you know, just wait for independent replication and you'll be pretty safe 
<laughs> no matter no matter what you're uh, what you're reading. Okay, yeah, that was great. Anybody have any other final thoughts on the book? <laughs> Wait, do we all get? Uh, yeah, do we all get free uh, signed copies? <laughs> looking forward to the second edition. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys for, for having me. I really appreciate. it. Yeah, we got two brothers to Christian. <laughs> oh, I think I have to buy a copy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'll <laughs> get inside and bring it back to the library. Then. Josh, bring the one from the library. Get it. Have him sign the one from the library. <laughs> Do the Boston Public Library. <laughs> Okay, uh, Tubular Secretions, where we all get to uh, a moment to uh, promote something that we've been reading, listening to, watching, uh, something that happened to us. I can go. Uh, is anybody ready? I'm never ready, but I'm going to go first. Up this front, time. Josh, what, so what do you got? I was actually in a used bookstore in Madison, Wisconsin last week and came across this that I'm going to show you. It's a copy of Glomerular Nephritis um, by Dr. Thomas Addis. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this book or if I'm like the last person on earth to see this. So this is from 1948. It's apparently like one of the first nephrology textbooks ever written. Um, and it's like bringing together the clinical diagnosis of glomerular disease and how you do it in a clinic. And the writing is just so much fun to read. And it's also like still so relevant in a way I did not expect. Um, can I read a little from it? Is that okay? Okay. Um, this book is written yeah, because we, yeah, this is the yeah. very beginning. This book is written because we've come to the conclusion that the present day treatment of patients with renal disease is inadequate and sometimes dangerous. There is no universally accepted plan of treatment, uh, but none of the current proposals takes cognizance of the therapeutic efficacy of rest. The idea of like letting a kidney do less work so it can last for more years into the future. Um, we tried all these things in the past, blah, 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 blah. But in those days, we did not know how the kidney worked. And so we did not know how to give it rest. It's just like really beautiful writing. And there's also all these things that I feel like come back when we talk and teach. Um, there's one, when the patient dies, the kidney may go to the pathologist, but while he lives, the urine is ours, which I really like. I feel like <laughs> that's got to make it in. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, that is great. That is good. <laughs> the setup of how a clinic works. Uh, the, his, like, one of the main ideas is physical separation ends in mental separation. So if you have the doctor, the nurse, the nutritionist, the lab folks in totally different environments never talking to each other, they're never going to think together about what's going on with the patient. So I'm maybe a quarter of the way into it. It's so fun to read. Um, and I would highly recommend folks try to find a copy. Nice. Two thumbs up for libraries. I don't know. Go to your local library. Market, but I will share it with folks. <laughs> Jenny, what do you got? Uh, that, that's a tough one to follow. <laughs> I would say. You just ran a, you just ran a half marathon, uh, right? Well. Running the Chicago. Did you just run a half marathon? No, no, no. I'm training for the Chicago marathon. Yeah. Excuse me, you're training yeah. for the Chicago Heaven. And where are you in that training? Okay, She's well, I did run a half marathon. Well, not, it's not, but the, the, there you that's go. a long run, right? Like your long run is like, oh, I just ran a half marathon. Um, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So that, that's where you are in your training. You're doing half marathons once a week now? Uh, yeah. So this coming week is going to be 15 miles. Mm -hmm. So we're getting into the 15 to 20 mile range from here on out. And on your training schedule, what will be your longest run? 
it will the, be uh for the 20 it'll be week. 20 yeah so that'll be three three weeks and are you gonna do that once or twice i have the option to do it twice i think i'm gonna do it once and do 18 in place of the first gotcha one. so the the group i train with uh we they do they put on this whole like fake 20 mile race it's not fake but it's just more like a dress rehearsal type of race. Yeah. They have all the aid stations. Everyone's suited up. They have like a finish line, <laughs> everything. They have a gear check se- section. So that's 20 miles along the lakefront path nice. here in Chicago. So, so yeah, it's, it's been interesting and so far injury free. So I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, That's the thing that kills yeah. it is, is getting an injury. Yeah. And, um, Speaking of like all the things that you want to believe and, you know, bl- you know, listening to your Facebook friends, I, I do <laughs> monitor some of these, uh, running groups on Facebook mm-hmm. and it's interesting that the different advice people give each other and, you know, what is the best approach for, you know, a woman who is not 20 years old to train for a marathon. I think the jury's still out, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's just interesting to see all the advice everyone's giving each other and as well as advice on hyponatremia. And I have to restrain myself from actually joining in on the conference because I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I did not want anything screenshotted and like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's been an interesting ride. We'll see how it goes. Excellent. Jade, what do you got? Um, I am reading a book. Actually, I finished it recently. Um, that I really think kind of goes in with some of the things we've talked about here. It's called The People's Hospital, um, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. And I really love it because it's a story of the healthcare system that I work in. So it's about the um, Harris County Hospital District, which is now Harris Health. And the story is by, um, it's not a story, the, the book is about um patients who are uninsured in Texas and how they are kind of left behind by the corporate for-profit American healthcare system. And um, the author who wrote the book, uh, Dr. Nuila, is a doctor at Ben Taub. He works, uh, he's uh, at Baylor, not UT. But it's just, it's just a really great book about, you know, what can, what medicine could be or what healthcare could be if it wasn't a corporate for-profit system and and i i love working at harris health and i really like the 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 way that the it's like a microcosm of what public health care could be for how it works in our system and how it could be applied to the larger united states as a whole so i think it's really great and it, again it's really well written similar to what perry has done there's stories of patients kind of woven throughout this this uh, woven throughout this healthcare policy story. It's called the People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in America. People's America. Hospital, Hope and Peril. Nice, excellent recommendation. Very good, Perry. What do you got? Um. Well, I I am rereading for I think maybe the fifth time one of my favorite books. Um. That I recommend to everyone who is in academia in any way. And that is uh, Neil Stevenson's Anathem. 
Um, if you guys are familiar, Neil Stevenson is, you know, I know Neil of, Stevenson. Yeah, I great. Know, tell me about Anathy. Snow, Snow Crash, uh, you know, um, Diamond Age, um, uh, Cryptonomicon. That's that Neil Stevenson. Anathem is a story set in a in a different world, similar to ours, where um, uh, uh, the 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 science people are cloistered off in these you know monastery like buildings and are completely isolated from the rest of the world for either what you can go in for one year 10 years a hundred years or a thousand years <laughs> um, and the gates are all on a huge clock such that they only open once every you know x number of of years um and so uh it is a great story and of course a lot happens that shakes up this this carefully cloistered world um but if you live or work in a place that feels that way sometimes like you're <laughs> you're cloistered off from the real world and stuck inside and you um might not get to leave for 10 or 100 years um read anathem you'll find a lot of uh, uh characters that you'll recognize thanks guys this was great i'm gonna stop the but don't don't close your browser i'm going to stop the recording <laughs>